think the Pistons are having a bit of a moment. The Bad Boys, you've got yeah. the the Rodman thirty for thirty, the Bad Boys thirty for thirty. Uh, there's a bit of a Pistons renaissance uh, yeah. happening right. uh, in in the culture right now, and um, I enjoy it. I I enjoy it. I have no memory of those teams. I would never right. watch those teams. Right. Um, one of my takeaways is that Bill Lambeer was pretty good. Like he was, well, Bill was very I mean, he's a little. He's underrated skill wise. It's all well, about him knocking people in the face well, and not. No, 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 hey, no. Bill was like, very this good. Dude, yeah, this this guy, you know, if it was the modern NBA, he would be shooting tons of three pointers. Like okay. uh, he would be shooting more threes. Uh, he's a stretch five back then. Chuck, it's pretty Chuck damn good. Ran, Chuck ran a side screen roll with Zeke and, and Bill eight straight plays. Eight straight plays. And I forget what playoff series it was. It wasn't the Bulls. It was like maybe they were playing. Cleveland or Milwaukee was like the conference semifinals. And he said, I, he said, until they stop this shit, I'm going to keep running. <laughs> you know? so, and Bill was a pick and pop guy, but he could roll too. He didn't do it often, but he did it just enough that you had to pay attention. And he's a pretty good passer too, you know? So, I mean, yeah, he played dirty, but he also got 10,000 rebounds now. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. You know, Bill, should be, Bill was pretty I, good I, now. <laughs> and he's not in the, and he's not in the hall of fame, no, right? Am I misremembering that? I have argued for him that he should get more consideration for the hall of fame and he'll never get in because everybody hates him, you mm. know? Um, and he brought that on himself because he didn't have to be that way. Um, he, he was more skilled than he played. Like he didn't have to be a thug. He, he played like one. Because he thought he had to do it, but he really didn't have to do it. He was pretty skilled. Speaking of uh, white players from the 1980s, was Bobby Jones really underrated? Was he was that guy one of the most underrated? Because I look at his stats, and I'm pretty impressed. Bobby played like a brother. Bobby played like a brother. <laughs> Bobby was Bobby. What Bobby had quickness, like you know what I'm saying? Like he could like, and he, he could jump. But you know, some guys can jump, but he had quickness too. Bobby is Bobby was the one white guy back then that played like a brother. He played like a black man. <laughs> in the highlights, I see uh, chase down blocks. Like I see a lot of chase down blocks from in the highlights. He was like Michael Cooper. He was like a taller Michael Cooper. He, he filled a lane like he'd make a three, but he guarded the shit out of people. Bobby could play. Bobby was good. <laughs> David, I got an idea. Why don't you come on the House of Strauss next week and Ethan can get all these questions off? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> oh, sure. Jane. I'll be happy. <laughs> Let's bring D.A. into the conversation here. Welcome to Who Comma Is Adjacent on the Athletic Podcast Network. I turned it on and I heard Shaq with the barbs and just like the bullshit and his braggadocia. I was transported right back into it. I was like, oh, this is great. <laughs> I think I rap better than Shaq. David Aldridge. Oh, he's totally playing him. Yes. <laughs> yes. And then he yes. had their lungs out in front of everybody on TV. Michael was not your friend. It was so the Chicago and Detroit stuff, that was real. That was real. I mean, God forbid we don't have scholarship monies and can't pay for the charters for the water polo <laughs> in Iowa. Welcome to Hoops Five, Four. We have ignition. Hello, Hello. 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 Stuck in D.C. with the rest of the world, stuck where you are, and in L.A., my man Waz Lambre. Waz, how are you, sir? I'm good. What's going on with you, brother? I'm chilling, man. man. It's, it's, we hitting a heat wave right now up in Southern California. It should be around like 90 degrees today. What's up? What's up with the crazy? What, where, where, which beach was it where everybody showed up last that's, week? That's Just Orange like... County. That's a different type of Southern okay. California. That's all okay. I'll <laughs> say for that. <laughs> 
just like yeah we yeah covid we, we don't really care about that out here we're just gonna go get our tan on i guess you know so. yeah that's limbaugh country <laughs> okay i got you i got you <laughs> yeah. i got you um so i uh, wanted to before we bring in our guest ethan strauss wanted to highlight that we are still in a 90-day free trial here at the athletic which means that you can survey our great content whether it's the nba whether it's the nfl we had incredible content dame brugler's uh, beast of a draft preview that lots of people liked. Uh, baseball with all the craziness that's going on there. Will they start? Will they not? You can read all of it for free for three months uh, and uh, tell us what you think. And hopefully you become a subscriber. So go to theathletic.com and hit that uh, link and you will get the 90 day free trial. I think it's theathletic.com slash free, I think, or free trial or something. Anyway, go on our site, look it up, you'll find it. And um, hopefully you'll look, you'll sample and you'll like us. So um, check us out. And with that, we want to bring in, I want to bring in our colleague, Ethan Strauss, whose book came out, I think a couple of weeks ago, right? The Victory Machine, The Making and Unmaking of the Warriors Dynasty. Friend of the show, Ethan Strauss, welcome back, my man. Yeah, um, it came out April 14th, and I have just become an insufferable uh, author since that point. It was a very quick process. I now, you know, I talk down to people. Uh, I correct people's grammar. Um, you know, it's uh, I turned into an alcoholic. That's what authors do. I became an alcoholic, a, a romantic alcoholic I became. Oh my God! So book tours are bad enough. They got to be insufferable during this, where you're not where you're not going anywhere. You're just on the phone all day, or you're on Skype all day. It's got to be horrific. It's the virtual tour. Then again, I don't know what it would have been like. I have nothing else to compare it to, right? right so right. I, I'm not sure what the real book tour experience actually is. Um, you know, in some ways, this is this is easier. Um, I enjoy it. And it's nice to have a reason to talk to people. And I think I got lucky, though, I have to say, I think I got lucky that the Bulls documentary came out. And so people are just talking about dynasties for no damn reason. Um, so it's almost like the topic is in the air. Um, and that just makes it such an easy lead in on a lot of these shows. And uh, as bad a situation as we're all in, uh, I think Think that I might have had some strange ancillary benefits right now in terms of the zeitgeist. Yeah, it seems it seems like people are really thinking about how things end, um, and I think the nature of the NBA and teams that end up being really successful they have interesting, compelling characters, right? Even in today's age, where I think you spend a lot of time in the book talking about the difficult relationship between athletes and media. And even in today, like people still find these guys interesting, even with less access, because there's stuff like Instagram, there's stuff like KD, just like he can't help but say things that people go, hmm, like what? <laughs> you know, so yeah. it, I think that's the, the common thread, right? Obviously, Michael Jordan is the most compelling player we've ever seen in the sport. But the Warriors were, you know, a ridiculously interesting story in, them, in and of themselves. And I think in your book, you did a good job of going from Lacob and his personality type and how he acquired the team and Steve to Steve Kerr to, you know, his journey into coaching from being a ex player, ex front office executive to, you know, some of the personality traits of the guys on the team. I think you did an effective job laying the whole thing out. And um, I think that's why it's resonating with people, man. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, yeah, it, it, it is interesting to see, 
It is interesting to see media back then versus media now. I was fascinated watching Michael Jordan handle the same question again and again and again and again on the road, for instance. And I have to say, um, as much as that might have been boring for him, I felt a little bit like the questions are a little bit harder core back then for media in, in the scrums <laughs> yeah. than, than right now, because, you know, for as much as I saw Draymond saying that they were getting asked all the time about their contracts, him and clay, you know, KD was saying that he gets asked about it all the time. I didn't really see that happening. You know, we were around them all the time and in the Bay area to throw us all under the bus, I feel like we are a little soft compared to the other media <laughs> entities. And the questions back then, as I say in the book, were mostly, so you guys win a lot. That's pretty cool. How does that feel? That's good. Okay. See you tomorrow. There wasn't a whole lot of, are you coming back, Clay? Hey, Clay. Hey, Clay. What are you going to sign? Hey, Clay. 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 You know, it seems like that was more of the past than, than right now. It, it, it was, um, I, I think everybody's soft these days, you know, and, and I say that as somebody, I didn't consider myself particularly hard, you know what I mean? Like back in the day, like I'd ask the question, but I wouldn't be like nasty about it. You know, I would just ask it kind of matter of factly and most people did, but I would say this, we had a lot more material to work with than y'all do. Y'all are team, mm. the Warriors for the most part for, you know, three, like three and a half out of the five years, it was all team harmony and everything's good. <laughs> and everybody loves everybody. And, you know, no, you know, we had literally the Beatles breaking up. You know, I remember doing mm. a piece for the, for the, for ESPN where I literally said, this is like the Beatles breaking up and I'm not kidding because I've made Jerry Krause into Yoko Ono. And that's exactly <laughs> the same thing. It's the same thing. This thing is going good. Wait, does Everybody's make, happy. Does that make Reinsdorf John Lennon? Or <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I think I had, no, Phil was John Lennon. I had Phil as John Lennon. Uh, Michael was Paul McCartney. Um, I think Rodman was Robin was Ringo. Ringo, of course. Who would I have? Scotty was George Harrison, the kind of brooding, thoughtful, you know, he's really better than you think as a guitar player, you know, kind of guy. And then I had Jerry was Yoko, you know, comes in and breaks up all this great shit, right? You know, so, um, and it, but that you had real, you had this incredible inter team. Is it inter or intra? I always get that mixed up. Um, mm. Intra team drama, you know, um, and it was just watching. It was like it was like if the captain of the Titanic like punched a hole in his own boat. That's what it was like. <laughs> you know what I mean? Well, it wasn't were, like they this unfortunate circumstance where so, they hit an iceberg. It was like, no, somebody is actually punching a hole in the boat and that's why it's sinking right now. So you I know? needed Bob Myers and Steve Kerr to hate each other. Exactly. Was, that would have been good. <laughs> they usually do. The GM and the coach usually hate each other. Right, right. Damn There's it. so much Yeah, and so that's why I think the I, I, in fact, the thing I wanted to ask you off the top was, and you were you were very clear about this in in the intro to the book, is that it's it's much more interesting to watch something end than it than it is to watch it kind of be created and and built. And so I wonder, you know, if if Kevin Durant for whatever reason had an eleventh hour change of heart and said, you know what, I like it out here in Silicon Valley, taking meetings with all these you know billionaires and stuff, I'm going to stay for another two years. Do you write this book? Uh, the book would have already been written, so I think the book, yeah, I think the book okay. happens no matter what. Um, it might have undermined the idea that I knew what I was talking about when I said that he had a foot out the door and was leaving. You know, that might have <laughs> given me less credibility, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I would have seen no reason. I would have seen no reason, but the themes would have made as much sense. I don't know what I would have done, but I have to be honest, I didn't really 
I didn't. I, I, he was just gone. He was just gone. <laughs> it was just done. Right. It was just done. And even w- when the decision exists in one man's mind, it can always be changed. And part of me thought, well, maybe, you know, what if he, but it's just clear that there wasn't anything, there wasn't anything stopping that train. Uh, it was going to arrive on time. You know what I found really fascinating about reading your book, Ethan, um, is the the degree to which LeBron James's presence sort of looms throughout the book. Oh, like yes. he's such a like I didn't I didn't expect him to be such a huge character in the book, but just LeBron's existence looms over everything. It's it's with Steph in 2016 and KD in his pursuit of you know quote unquote dethroning LeBron and all of these other things. And what it made me think about was I remember when the Kevin Durant news happened in 2016. I remember being around some of my friends who I would describe as normies as it pertains to like mm. their basketball fandom. They watch the games. They'll watch first take every now and again. They, you know, they know who Shams and Woj and all these people are, but they're not like, you know, they don't live on basketballreference.com, right? Like, <laughs> they, 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 they're they're c- civilians. They're civilians. <laughs> they're civilians. They're civilians. And I remember one of my homies saying, you know, of course KD went to um, Golden State. He he follows literally every single thing LeBron ever does. Like, he's obsessed with LeBron. And I remember at the time being like, nah, come on, that's off base. Like, that doesn't even make mm. any sense. And like, because I'm like, come on, Normie, like, you, you're going with this narrative thing. The guy just wanted to do this, <laughs> this, that, right? And as I'm reading your book, he was 100% right. Like, it seems like KD is very driven by where he stands compared to LeBron. Well, he said it. He was sick of being second place. And in fairness to him, I mean, the difference between first and second, it's the Pareto principle. It's the idea of scale, <laughs> like we see with, with tech companies, where the difference between number one and number two is vast. It's massive. It's massive. Mm-hmm. Difference between number five and number six, nothing. Difference between one and two, huge. One, you're the face of Nike. You're 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 the face of Nike. You are one of the most famous people on earth, if not the most famous athlete. Two, that's a lot of steps down from that. And I think that you can see some of Katie's moves too. Maybe it's coincidental, but he seems to do the things LeBron the super just team. did. Yes, the, the super moving team. to the big city like, after the good. super team, and it's like, oh, you're doing you're doing the shop. Oh, I'm going to do the boardroom, yep. and it's not going to be as good as the shop. <laughs> Um, you know there is this kind of i'm applying this model and why isn't this model working for me this model that worked for you you joined your super team you won the championship playing against me you got crowned as the best player i get my own super team i beat you you can't guard me uh, we go 16 to one in the playoffs. I hit the big shot over you. And the next day, everybody just keeps saying that you're the best player and you're number one, but you know, but you know what I think is great about your book, Ethan, you answer the question in the book, you answer the question and it, and it comes in the form of a Clay Thompson quote where after they beat Houston, like you, you, you basically describe being like really taken aback by how happy everybody is to have won this second round series. And somebody, I think it was you who asked Clay, like, yo, why are you so happy? And he said, that shit was hard. 
And I think that's why KD didn't get the love, the credit, the adoration. Like, people feel like he didn't have to sweat for it. Like, you can say whatever you want about three and six champion, three out of six championships, this, this, that, and the third about LeBron James, but he's never won a championship where he didn't have to be all-time great. For his like his team has never won a championship where he didn't play at an all-time great level. And you can't really say and, and it was absolutely required, right? Like they beat the Spurs in seven games, barely. Um they beat OKC in five games, but at the same time, like all of those games OKC, were really, really close. OKC and OKC might have even been favored. I can't yes, remember. Yes, they were favored but, going well, into the series. Yeah. I mean, they they had and it was a it was a very close five game series. I mean, it wasn't like the heat like blew him out. Mike Miller had to hit like seven threes in the last game yep. for them to pull it out. And then no of question. course it's 2016 where like he's, they're playing clearly a better team. They're down three, one, they went like nobody had ever seen LeBron play decently and still win a championship up to whatever LeBron's standard of play is. And I think fans were like, look, KD, come on, man. Like you didn't have to do that much to win these, we, we, these championships. We we don't go to the movies and watch Superman do something easy, right? right? Like our, our hero, our hero needs to do something epic. They need to overcome something. That that's kind of the idea of the whole thing. And it doesn't just redound to oh, you win a lot. We're going to give you all the love, and we're going to be so impressed by it. And I think this might have this move might have been based in part on just a fundal, fundamental misunderstanding of people. It's almost the way that industries do things of, oh, this kind of TV show works, so let's make a TV show like that TV show and everybody will love it. Bingo. It doesn't it doesn't work that way necessarily. It didn't work out that way. And you know, we got something from it. Look, that is probably the best team ever in my opinion, the 2017 Warriors. And you can argue about it, but just that top line talent uh, we're closing the game with Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Kevin Durant, Andre Iguodala, and Draymond Green. Um, that's that's just it's crazy. <laughs> it's it's decadent. It's completely decadent. Sixteen and one in the playoffs. I mean, it's I, decadent. I, I I would push back just a little bit on. I I think KD did get something out of it though, right? I mean, he got two fi- he got two rings. He got two Finals MVPs. I mean, whatever. Whatever else he didn't get out of it, if he didn't get the adulation as the unquestioned number one guy in basketball, or he didn't get the uh, unquestioned adulation as the number one guy at Nike, he did get something out of it, right? I mean, he did. He, he got did he got the experience. He got the experience of the night of winning a championship, and it can never really be taken away from him. But the issue for him is that he is affected by people slapping an asterisk on it or saying that it's not so great. And then is haunted by that conversation. Um, If he was, I think like Clay Thompson or some of these other guys where uh, the ring is enough, then it would be a different matter. But look, whether he got something out of it, or whether he just got tired of the situation because he wasn't getting the same thing out of it. Eventually, his perspective was the Warriors were getting more out of him than he was getting from them. So in that regard, I always am most fascinated, as I I think many people are, by the dynamics between him and Steph. And as you know, this doesn't work if Steph Curry raises a single hand and says, eh, I'm not so sure. You know, I'm not so sure we need him. We just won 73 games without him. What do we need him for? You know, and so I wonder, I mean, there was obviously some, 
it was like the it's like the 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 Montagues and the Capulets, right? Like, hmm. was there wasn't it more the guys on the side that you know the the it wasn't really Romeo that had the problem with them. It was the other guys that kind of instigated. So was this really Katie doesn't like Steph because people like Steph more than him, or was it people around him or people around Steph saying, "Hey, you're better than him." This is your team, and that whole your team thing is a whole separate book. But, you know, rather than the real animosity that they had for one another, if they had animosity for one another. Yeah, I don't know if it was animosity, but there was clearly that little rivalry where all the coaches, all the assistant coaches, film room guys, you could see, I would just look at people's feet because it was about half Steph's shoes and half mm. KD's shoes. And,. Mm. You know, KD came into the situation making fun of Steph's sneaker brand, which, I mean, we'll, we'll all laugh because it's kind of funny um, <laughs> when he goes on Jimmy Kimmel or Bill Simmons podcast and talks about how trash Steph's shoes are. But that's, I mean, Steph's got a stake in that company. That's his reputation in a way. Um, yeah. And KD just came in just kind of mocking it. And, you know, they, they, there was just a little, there was just a little something there. And then he was aggravated by how much the fans preferred Steph. That was clear. You know, does that mean that he doesn't like Steph? Not necessarily. You know, the two had a big embrace uh, when the Warriors came through Brooklyn a few months ago. So they're obviously on speaking terms and at least in front of people friendly, but they were never friends either. You know, right. they never they never had that. You know, I think Marcus has has written that where they weren't close. Um, they didn't get along in, in, in that particular way. Um, and they were, in a way, reputational rivals who, even though they were succeeding and winning together, had undermined one another's star um, in this other way, in this individual way. So it was a fraught dynamic. And I think one that Steph was probably more OK with in the end than KD was. Man, human beings are so fascinating, Ethan. I know that's like the premise of the book, but I think about the entire stuff about KD sort of during last season, 2018-19, he got to a point where he was just openly undermining Steve Kerr in the press, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Steve Kerr said he needs to play with anger and aggression, and he goes, oh, I thought we needed to play with joy. Or he comes out and has a good game. He doesn't credit it to, you know, aggressive play. He credits it to, well, they call plays for me, and I'm just an instrument of my coach, and I just go out there and do what I want, right? But you can tell that KD – it's funny because KD bristled at the idea – that he was in this sort of democratic offensive attack, right? When it's like, look, you got a Ferrari, use it, put me in one-on-one, let me cook these dudes, this is what I do. But at the same time, when he freaking left OKC, part of the 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 the, the appeal of Golden State as a team and as an offensive philosophy was that they were more democratic, that he wouldn't be doing hero ball and iso ball and playing the game the right way and all of that. And then, you know, I can understand why he would be frustrated in the playoffs of, well, now you want me to go out and do my one-on-one -on -one thing when you've been, you know, basically condescending to me about the importance of everybody having the ball and touching it. Like, it makes no sense what KD's <laughs> approach, but like I, at the same time, I get it. I, like, I don't, I, yeah. I don't know if you understand what I'm trying to say here, Ethan. Well, no, human beings, the, human that's beings the whole, are a fucking mystery. That's yeah, what you're trying but, to say. But, that's, but that, that whole thing made sense to me because that is the Kevin Durant experience where, I mean, 
you know, Draymond Green experience is he's always right, but he's wrong in how he goes about it. That's the Draymond Green experience. KD experience is you understand where he's coming from, but he's usually in the wrong about it. (laughs) Like You understand why he's saying something or why he feels the way he feels. And yet at the same time, for a particular reason, he he's, he's in, he's in the wrong and he's Mm -hmm. just a man of contradictions. He wants to be regarded as the number one guy by media, but he wants to get there purely by basketball and not by playing the game. But then if you care about how these media people are regarding you, that it only makes sense to play the game. I mean, I find it funny. It's this idea of, oh my God, this is crazy. I just played so well in the finals and all of these people on television I've been ridiculing and jumping in their DMs and calling names aren't giving me the crown. This is a crazy situation. Like, Of course, that's what would happen. I that's mean, exactly what would happen. <laughs> Kevin is a, he's an interesting guy in, in that regard. And I, I mean, I've had these discussions with players all for years. Why do you care what we think? We don't play. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like they get, they get, I got into this with CJ McCollum were, on but, Twitter. But, like, but DA, that's why they hate us so much sometimes. It's the <laughs> ultimate resentment is I have no respect for you and I hate myself right now because I care about what you think. <laughs> I care what somebody I have no respect for thinks about me, and that makes me even angrier. It's unbelievable. I promise you, there's people that can't write a sentence that I have complete contempt for. I don't care if they think I can write or not. You know what I mean? Like I respect people who can write that I that I have that I hold as peers, as I hold as as mentors for me. I don't respect a guy that can't write. Why would I respect someone who can't write? You know, it's, it's for crazy. what I do for a living, it doesn't make any sense to me. Like, when, I don't, like I don't time, want to reveal. David, I, I, Ethan, um, I think part of what plays into this is that KD literally never had a hive. He never had stands. Mm. He never had, like, yeah, even yeah. Westbrook to a certain extent. Don't you guys remember the Let Russ Be Russ movement? I on think the he did. I think right. he had him in OKC. I think he had his people who weren't, you know? Did he have people who weren't Thunder fans that rooted for him? I don't remember that ever being, like, I've never, I don't remember ever meeting somebody who's like, yo, my son or my nephew is this huge KD person. I've li- I, 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 maybe those <laughs> people existed. I've never saw it before. But you, but the difference is, you know this. Russ does not give a shit what right. we think about right. him. Yes. He doesn't yes. care. <laughs> yes. I mean, he, he, as Anthony Slater says about Russ, I mean, I don't think it's a lot of fun as a media person to deal with Russ, but what Slater respects is it's fuck you to everybody. It's not, <laughs> you know, fuck you, little affiliate from Canada. Right. But, and I respect you know, that. Oh, I actually respect TNT, that. get over here. Yeah. You know, no, it's fuck you, TNT. Fuck you, ESPN. Fuck you, Oklahoma City. <laughs> fuck everybody. That's Russell Westbrook. It's fuck everybody with no yeah. distinctions. And hey, and it, there's a like consistency it. to it. Oh, people like it because that's <laughs> how we consistent. are. We talk about how human <laughs> beings are fascinating. You know, you'd think logically we would see that KD needed our love and we would give him the affirmation. No, but no, instead what we do is we notice we notice that his teammate Clay Thompson doesn't care at all what we think and we just lavish him with praise and we laugh at every unintentional joke he makes. That's just what we do. <laughs> and, and and it's similar to Steph where there's a sense that Steph has that security and so people are drawn to it. When we feel like you're vulnerable or insecure, as many of us are, 
you know, in theory, we should relate to it, but we don't because, again, this is about heroes. It's about demigods. We want you to be above us. We don't want you to be like us. We don't like ourselves. You know, we don't like <laughs> ourselves. We don't want somebody who's like us. No, we want whatever we imagined Michael Jordan to be. That's what we want. And it's it's funny because, you know, another part of the book that I found, and this had came out at the time, but, you know, <laughs> KB is getting these tepid MVP chants in the crowd, <laughs> and he, it's like MVP. It's like... By the, the way, coldest, that... that- that didn't come out at the time. Oh, it didn't come out at. Or maybe I might have been you text, had told us in the chat. <laughs> I might have been. Te- I might have been telling you in the group chat. Okay, but okay. Yeah. So that was I breaking maybe, news. I guess. I mean, breaking news of a few months ago. But yeah, he was. It, it was. But it was out in public in a way. You know, mm-hmm. he's out there at the free throw line. He's batting his hand at the MVP chance of the crowd. I mean, it was. But just but such at a the crazy, same time, he's been like, it's stupid that he's doing that. Right, Ethan, but like it's the most feeble MVP chant that a player of his MVP. caliber has ever heard from his home fans. Like, gotta be. It has to be the weakest one that anybody as good as KB has ever heard I'm from sure their home fans. I'm sure most spates got a better MVP chant at some point. <laughs> and, cool. and and you know, and at a certain point you understand KD's frustration. Like, that's corny, that's stupid that KD would you know, sort of brush the crowd and say, now you love me, like a seven-year-old, right? But at the same time, it's like, it's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> like, it's crazy. Well, you, can't manuf- you can't manufacture the love. And look, you know, you can see it from KD's perspective, but you could also see it from the fans' perspective, which is we like Steph. We saw Steph grow up here. Um, Steph isn't prickly all the time. He's not in the media talking about how the God of the area, Steve Kerr, uh, who's just beloved by media here. He's not undermining Steve and every other press conference. And and the other thing is Mm. Steph's not signing one year deal, one year deal, one year deal. That's also not happening. So if you don't commit to the fans, you can't necessarily expect them to commit to you back. That's just not realistic. Well, plus Steph is, you know, like he's, He's he's almost perfect for a fan to appreciate because he's not seven feet tall. It's yeah. I mean, Will said nobody loves Goliath, right? So I mean, it's just hard to relate. It's hard for a lot of NBA fans to relate to a seven foot tall black man. Come on, now let's just be honest about it. You know, <laughs> whereas Steph is like six feet tall and he doesn't. He looks like uh, an accountant. You know what I mean? Like he's not. He just looks like a, a normal sized person who well, can, and, who and does this kids, incredible thing. And the kids love Steph because even though Steph is like probably in the top 1% for height among human beings on the TV screen. He looks, he looks like a small. kid compared to, yep. compared to the other kids. Yeah. So, the, so then the kids go, that's, that's who I'm going with. That's who I like. And there's, it's crazy because Kevin Durant's game is just incredible. I mean, he's Somebody, just, he's unstoppable. He's, he's amazing. He's, <laughs> he's absolutely amazing. And yet there just doesn't seem to be that resonance um, yeah. that, that you might expect. Like, it's just, yeah, maybe well, it's the height. He had resonance. It was in Oklahoma City. So, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, you can't have it both ways. You want to be the man? Be the man in Oklahoma City. But but here's the other thing, DA, is that these guys are surrounded by people telling them, you can have it both ways. (laughs) (laughs) You can have it all. Right. There are right. no compromises. You'll get everything you want. And that's what they're surrounded by. And you can understand why they gravitate to it because – 
you know, per a lot of what we're talking about, a lot of the stuff on social media is toxic. Their mm-hmm. social, their self-esteem is getting undermined by what strangers are saying in a way that could not happen the same way back in the past where maybe some guy yells out in the crowd, but it's just not, it's not the same as it being just pumped into your brain when you look at your mentions. And if you're addicted to looking at your mentions, then you are going to have uh, a lot of wounds on your psyche and somebody telling you that you can get everything you want. Um, Obviously not the best advice, but you can understand why people want that kind of advice in this modern media climate. I mean, I saw it in the Taylor Swift documentary where she's got all these flunkies around her that are just reading. <laughs> Perez Hilton just said this great thing about you. And it's after she said some stupid, you know, not too well thought together cliche uh, political thing oh, that, God. you know, might have been in the right. Like, you know, she might have been right on balance, but it, she wasn't saying anything profound. But she's got these flunkies who are all telling her that it's all it's all going great. It's all great. Everything you did is fantastic because that makes her feel good in the moment. And, you know, to, you know, just speaking to that, just about and, and, and you know, I, I don't feel bad telling you how good the book is, but I think what the book is doing that's don't so, be. so, Spread the so word. that's doing so that is doing so well is that like this stuff is so fragile. Like this, this idea of constructing a team. That is so good to to just be rendering the NBA straight up the competition obsolete. It's so fragile and hinges on these things that are out of Joe Lacob's control, out of, um, you know, Bob Myers and Steve Kerr's control. Like they can be great at their jobs and do literally everything right along the way, which I wouldn't say that they did like stuff like the parade where they're dissing KD jokingly and all of those things. Um <laughs> And still have things blow up, but like you know, and I want to do want to talk about the Miami Heat and the Warriors. Like it's it matters because the Heat in, like basically started this era. Like when we go back and when historians look back at this time, they're gonna like the decision in that Miami Heat yes. situation was the it, line of social, demarcation. It was a social contagion yep. because everybody follows LeBron's lead, yep. and right. he made it okay to spurn a fan base in that way and to team hop from team to team to team now what some of these guys aren't understanding is that you're not lebron james you're not going to retain all of the status that lebron has going team to team to but team. you but people you know what gonna, ethan no you know I people think... are gonna go like paul george who's he play for again like right. where is he now <laughs> right right no but ethan what i think people are forgetting now is that and which is what because i remember you know I, i'm friends with a bunch of guys who love lebron right and like myself, I've always been a LeBron fan, um, you know, full disclosure. And I remember these guys absolutely killing the KD decision. Oh, that's weak. Oh, that's this. I'm like, guys, this is literally the exact same thing LeBron did in 2010. Like, it's literally the same thing. And the reason why people were so outraged is because we all thought the Heat were going to be as good as the KD Warriors eventually would be. We just happened to be wrong about it. And so, like, there was drama and there was intrigue and there was all of that stuff. But people were pissed because they thought he was basically making basketball fun-proof and that he was just going to walk to championship. That's, like, that's really why people were upset. They were like, wow, he's cheating the system. He's ruining the league. He's making this thing not fun anymore by picking and choosing and stacking the decks and all of that. LeBron and LeBron himself thought he was doing that with the not one, not two. He thought he was getting seven championships. We were just all wrong. <laughs> and mm. so KD actually 
does it, achieves it in a much like actually well, it's, did it's, it. It's a weird thing because it's a strange thing to tell Kevin Durant that you're too good to make a decision that would otherwise be okay if you were worse. You know, if you were a worse player, then this would be fine. But you're so good that you can't play for this team that you want to play for. I mean, ultimately, he owns his own talent and has worked to develop it. But at the same time, people react to what they want. And Mm -hmm. people don't want that. The objective fan, the average fan, did not want Kevin Durant joining the Warriors. It didn't make basketball as fun. It made it more predictable to them. It killed the Thunder, which was a team and a brand that they were familiar with. So they lost something and the Warriors in some ways maybe became less aesthetically pleasing because it wasn't about Steph scoring 40 or going for 40 every night. So you can understand or I can understand why he wasn't necessarily in the wrong for making the decision and it was an understandable decision, yet it wasn't the one fans wanted and it's that's why they're going to punish you when you make a decision they didn't like. That's just how it is. I always, um, I always want to talk uh, with people who follow successful teams, and you, you talk about this some in the book. It, it, it always strikes me as so funny that everybody thinks they invented something, you know, that nobody else has ever done before, you know, mm. and and that they are they are above luck, you know, like luck doesn't matter to them. Luck favors the bold. Luck favors the strong, you know, and all these things. No, luck favors people who are lucky. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, it just that's just the way it is. It's okay, and and people, uh, I don't know why people can't accept the fact that sometimes you're just fucking lucky. <laughs> you know what I mean? I and feel so, this is one big subtweet of Joe Lacob is what I'm hearing. No, right it's now. not. It's not. It's not all. No, it's really not about Joe Lacob. I mean, I think, but I'm. But there was fortune, as you point out, that there was. But for a set of really odd circumstances, Larry Ellison would have had the team and who knows what would have happened, right? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean that, that Joe Lacob's not doesn't work hard and he's not, you know, doesn't put all of his energy into making the team as good as it can be. But he got lucky. He had luck, good fortune to get the team. Things had to go his way to get the team. The same thing. They could have – you break down multiple times they were going to trade Steph they were going to trade Clay you know yeah if Jerry West doesn't say I'll quit if you quit trade Clay Thompson for Kevin Love they would have done the trade you know yeah. so um so these there's luck involved that's why this is so hard because you can be incredibly good and still need this luck to be on your side the right coach at the right time. The Knicks offered Steve Kerr way more than, than, yeah. the, than, the, than well, the Warriors and the, and did. And the Warriors wanted to hire Stan Van Gundy. I mean, right. They, that's, that's what they wanted. Stan you Van know? Gundy spurned them. You and, know, as you, yeah. and as you know, I mean, Steve was pretty close to taking the Knicks job. He just yeah. you know, decided that lifestyle meant more. He wanted, thought he had, they had a better chance of winning. But he could have taken the Knicks job and he would have been Derek Fisher. You know what I mean? Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like sometimes you get lucky too and it's okay to be lucky. It's okay to acknowledge there's luck in your life. But that's terrifying. That's terrifying. <laughs> people don't like to acknowledge luck. That's not fun. That's, you know, they've done studies that if people are driving and uh, there's a fatal car accident that the people where they were drunk or they were reckless in some way – actually recover better than the people who weren't at fault at all. That there's something to the idea that you can just be driving along in your car 
and something terrible happens and you have zero control over it, that is more damaging to the psyche than you actually being at fault and doing the bad thing. Because at least that makes sense. At least that gives you an idea of from this day forward, you are the one in control of your destiny. It's terrifying. And for some of these people who have succeeded a lot um, and are in high pressure jobs, uh, they want to believe that they are completely in control of whatever is going to happen. That's a security blanket. I think it's somewhat about wanting credit, somewhat about wanting to be the one who is regarded as having made all the wise decisions and having been psychic, but it's also just to quell the fear. Uh, that's that's the issue with luck. If we think that everything is unpredictable, then man, we have to really reckon with how powerless we are. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> that happens. That's yeah. life. That's yeah. life. I mean, so there's, there's thing. You know, I, I look. It's it's things happen in life that make no sense, right? I mean, they just yeah. don't make any sense. Like, why does why does this person become famous and successful and this person doesn't? And it has nothing to do. And it's not you're not questioning anybody's you know, doggedness or their intelligence or anything like that. But sometimes you have to have good fortune on your side. That's all. And it's, it's okay. And it's okay to acknowledge that. I don't understand why it's, why people have such problems. I talk all the time about my, the luck in my life that, that three people had to say no for me to get a job at the Washington Post. Like literally three people had to say, yeah, I'll yeah. do something else Dude, for could've... me to get the job. <laughs> I know? mean, I don't, I don't know what happens in my life if um, I'm just bumming around blogging about the Warriors and the Warriors never get good. You know, yeah. like if, if that happens, I don't know. I'm probably working some office job. Who knows? I, I, I don't know what happens. It's There is a tremendous amount of luck and you can say to people that – you have to be you have to be able to take advantage of the opportunities yes. as they come. Yes. You have to right. um it's really, you know, people talk about making your own luck. I don't know if it's making your own luck. It's almost more taking advantage of the luck when it happens. I mean, that's yes. what you have to yes. do. You have to seize the opportunity. But yeah, for any of us um who've been fortunate enough to do this job, uh yeah, there there has to be luck involved. There just has to be. It's not it's not a fair world out there. Uh, it isn't. But I also believe that the other, you know, but I also believe you need luck to achieve the ultimate success. But if you're good at what you do and you do a good job consistently, good things will tend to happen. That's also true. You might not, yes. you know, be recognized as the best who ever did it or become a millionaire off of it. But it's a pretty good program to run. It works out most of the time. Ethan, um, I know we spent a lot of time just now just talking about luck, but from your vantage point of covering this team and in both iterations of it, well, three iterations of it, hapless, terrible Monte Ellis era, um, <laughs> contender yep. to great team um, era, uh, which is, you know, uh, 14 to 16, essentially, and then the KD stuff, um, what would you say is most important in achieving and sustaining success in the NBA? Uh, between, what, what do you mean? Like the most important between quality or? Yeah, the most important quality of teams that can, can keep it going for a long time. Oh, man. That is, that is so. Because again, you were there for the Cohan era, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And, and, and I say era as 
E R R O R two. You know what's weird? You know what's weird? I want to say I want to say that it's your coach and your GM getting along, but we have too many counterexamples. We've got the Bulls being able to do what they did. Um, mm-hmm. despite the toxic dynamic with Phil Jackson and Jerry Krause and the toxic dynamic that followed with the Shaq Kobe Lakers with Jerry West and right. Phil Jackson. So right. I, I don't know. I think in the Warriors situation that made things easier, um, obviously drafting luck is there, but ultimately, and it's why maybe Joe Lacob has a point when he might feel that he's not getting his just credit. Having an owner who gives a shit, I think mm-hmm. is incredibly important incredibly important to have an owner who gives a shit because that's the biggest change that I saw. I saw Chris Cohan, a hermit, a non-presence, a void. And in the void, people knife each other. They fight for power in that power vacuum. And then Lacob comes in. He's not perfect. Not all of his ideas about basketball are, are great ideas, but just that he really gave a shit and was a presence then gives the organization some direction from the top down. And that's not a guarantee that you're going to win championships and have the kinds of players that the Warriors had, but it's almost a prerequisite for turning things around. I think that was the most important aspect. It's ownership. I, I was, I was fascinated and I've talked to you know, everybody's a lot of people talk to Joe about this, that the first thing he did was fire everybody on the business side, just fired them all, you know? And yeah. so to me, that to me was was is as important as firing Mark Jackson was. You know mm. what I mean? Like yeah. because of the message it sent to people. Like whatever you're doing, it's not even close to being good enough. You know what I mean? So, yeah. um, and that and that gets kind of a company wide focus that maybe you don't get if you're nice. You know. And he said, yeah. I could have been nice. I could have could have let people stay for a year, and I could have let people finish out their contracts and all that sort of thing. But, you know, he understood that they were so far behind everybody else that he had to kind of like shoot a hostage almost to get people's attention. Well, and it was also, that's the side that he understood. He, right. Right. He did a good job of knowing what he didn't know and going, okay, I don't totally get what happens with basketball ops. So we're not going to fire everybody. But I understand that this shit's fucked up on the business side. I understand the dysfunctional. <laughs> I understand dysfunction on the business side. And then the other thing that Joe Lacob did well was just having an understanding of people who had something that he lacked. So Joe is not empathetic. He doesn't act with emotional intelligence. And yet right. he hires Rick Welts. He hires Steve Kerr. He hires Bob Myers. He can see people – and ha- he right. can see that people have the thing that he doesn't have and therefore it's the thing that he needs. Or as he says about Steve and Bob, he always says, they get along. They get along. You know, I get they get mm-hmm. along. And I don't think Joe is somebody who gets along, but they get along and he recognized that that was needed. It's fascinating that and, and I give him credit for that because a lot of people in his circumstance don't. I wonder, though, do you think because obviously Peter Goober is a very rich man, but Peter Gooper has a sense of, I think, some empathy. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. And I wonder if yeah. that, you know, he seemed. I mean, he kind of, you know, he he he's a, he's a gregarious guy. Oh, he, he likes talking have to the media. Shrugged frame in his office. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I wonder if that partnership kind of opened Lakeup's eyes to, hey, you know what? I'm going to need a, a bunch of different people for this to work. Different well, kinds of people. 
Goober has more of a sense of what moves people, what inspires people. He's obsessed with story, and that's why when they were right. trying to buy the team and circumvent the auction and steal it out from under Larry Ellison's nose, Goober was saying to Lakeup, no, you've got to get on the plane. This cannot be a phone call. You've got to go to Chris Cohan. You've got to sit in the same room as human beings in order to close this deal. And I don't know if it happens without that suggestion from Goober, but I think Joe did benefit from Goober having more of a sense of what makes people tick and more of an emotional intelligence. And that's how they as a duo managed to, and I think it's, I mean, it's probably the biggest upset the Warriors have been involved in, uh, at least since we believe, um, you know, just to, just to buy the team in an auction setting against the richest man in California. Um, I mean, that's insane to me that they were able to pull that, uh, pull that off. It was very cloak and dagger, as David Stern said, uh, back back to that time. Uh, but that was quite the gambit, and I think it required the two of them putting their heads together. Ethan, I want to get to the guys, the sort of holdovers, right, who who remain mainstays when it comes to Draymond, Steph, and Clay. Uh, what's your sense of, like, do you think on balance they're happy that KD left? Like, I know for a fact that if he would have came back, signed a four-year deal, they would have been like, hell yeah, we're going to be winners forever, and embraced it. But, like, do you think that they're like, eh? <laughs> yeah, I think they were pretty happy to see the story run out. I think Steph mm. so prioritizes winning, though, that, I mean, he did go to KD and make that pitch. I mean, that was surprising mm. to me when he did it. But there are other there are other players on the team, I can say, who were going, I just can't wait to get off this ride. <laughs> And it wasn't just and it wasn't just Kevin. It was the whole thing, you know, the whole championship run. There was a lot of burnout and Kevin was at the yeah. center of a lot of that. Yeah. But I, I don't think that they were they they were not anxious that he might leave. That was not the vibe. That's <laughs> 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 how I will say. Well well no, because you know why I asked this I, question? Because I thought in I forget who you were talking to. But you were talking about the sort of Under Armour Nike dynamic and Under Armour's stock price dropping literally can track with KD coming to the team, right? But you yeah. also mentioned that Steph might have enjoyed the sort of human meat shield aspect of having KD mm -hmm. on his team, that he might have been tired of being Paul McCartney. Yeah. Like he might've been yeah. like, all right, this is getting overwhelming and I'd like to get to some semblance well, of NBA never normalcy. It was never a goal of his. I mean, most of these guys who get to that spot, they usually um, at least had a plausible path to it. It was in their mind's eye. You know, Michael Jordan was the best, you know, he was the best player in America and in college. And then as, as a rookie, he was obviously fed for superstardom. And LeBron, I mean, that's what his whole life has been leading up to. With Steph, this was never in the game plan to be an international celebrity. He always thought he was damn good. He always thought that he was, he was underrated, but I, I read this on a, I did read this on another podcast, but I just found it so interesting uh, as a uh, Rick Tellender. Uh, I did on the pod. Mm -hmm. Did you hear Waz? Did you hear that podcast by any chance? The, um, the one I did with Pablo. Yes, I did. I did. I so, so that. I'm going to repeat myself yeah, and I apologize ahead. for that just because <laughs> I found this to be so so interesting because I think it kind of encapsulated maybe why Steph might have wanted to get off that particular ride of being the guy. Um, so uh, Rick Tellender interviewing Michael Jordan. Um, okay. I've heard people say I'm the Babe Ruth of this half of the 20th century. I don't know. 
most recognized athlete. It seems that way. But man, it's lasted a lot longer than I anticipated. <laughs> I never thought it would go on like this. I'll tell you, to remain a positive role model in the public eye for so long, it takes a toll. It takes a big chunk of you. You want it to die out, but now it's so deep. It's a big responsibility that just goes on and on. <laughs> when he yeah, said wow. that, I, when he said that, yeah. I, I, or when I read that, I thought, you know, that doesn't sound fun. That yeah. doesn't sound right. like a lot of fun. <laughs> and right. I think it's it's about being at the extreme endpoint. Maybe you wanted to be an all-star. Maybe you wanted to be an MVP. But did you want to be an international icon to the degree that Mike was? I don't think that anybody really wants that once it I arrives. I think people don't understand it. They like people take um, being anonymous for granted. I always tell people one of my favorite things about living in New York and and being in New York is that you can be anonymous if you want to. Like you can just straight up if you want to just like go somewhere where literally nobody knows you, nobody will pay attention to you. No, your existence will be become meaningless to everything around you. You can hide in in New York because it's you know just the mass of people and you know just the scale of the city. You can go somewhere unlike most towns like you know in America where it's like all right, there's three bars in town, there's two restaurants, and like if I want to leave my house, I, like I have to go. Somewhere where I'm going to run into people who I know. And in New York, you can just be anonymous. But if you're Steph Curry, if you're Michael Jordan, you know, there's no such thing as anonymity anymore. And I I don't think people understand, like, how much that could weigh on people where you're constantly being watched. I think I, I I can remember one time listening to somebody describe Mike's existence and talking about, like, when he walks somewhere, he can feel a thousand eyeballs on him. Like he yeah. can literally just feel it, like that he, yeah. like that he's being watched constantly under surveillance. It's got to right. be a lot, man. I no, mean, I, said, I can't, yeah. I can't even imagine. I, I look, I might as well just admit this and fess up to it because I'm never going to be able to do it again <laughs> uh-huh. in our in our new world. But I, I, you know, sometimes when I when I go to Berkeley Bowl, the local fantastic grocery store uh, during Muscat grape season, I just liked. I like take. I like sampling the grapes. I like grabbing a grape. You know what I mean. Oh my Just like goodness. to be stealing a grape <laughs> here, here or there, um, especially the the muscat grapes. And at some point, because I'm not famous, but there's like the occasional person locally who might recognize me. Somebody tweeted that they were seeing me at Berkeley Bowl, and I was thinking, man, do they see see me stealing those grapes. <laughs> <laughs> Like I, I would want to live, you know. I wouldn't want to live as any more known. I, I, I want the ability to steal a grape every now and again if the opportunity presents itself. Well, my, Michael said famously many years ago that he told this to Mark Vansel, who is in. If you watch the Last Dance, you see a lot of Vansel, who was at the Chicago Sun Times and was was Michael's guy for many years in Chicago. He said he had this nightmare, or it might have been Bob Green, even from the Chicago Tribune, the great columnist there, said he he had this constant nightmare that he had done something wrong. Dude, I can't believe, and sorry. He, and he I, did. I, 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 I don't want to derail you at all, but yeah, I've, that's the first time I've heard Bob Green and con it like mentioned on a, on a podcast. And uh, yeah, I, I've become really good friends with his son who lives a, like a couple blocks away. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I don't no, want to interrupt that. No, it's no, a total no. digression. It's I, yeah. a total digression. He's yeah, a writer. But, he's a writer. Yeah. Is it slate? But anyway, yeah. Yeah. But, so, yeah, the, yeah it's just, that's fascinating. I'll, so I'll mention he had, that. He has this night. He has this recurring nightmare where he's done something wrong and he has to go out and face the public the next day. And that's the nightmare. 
is that he's he's committed a crime or something. Mm. You know, it's never he never specifically says what it is that he did. But maybe it changes. But it's something really bad. And now he has to go out and talk to people about it. And that's and that's the the weight of his not only his celebrity, but the expectation of his celebrity on him, which again reinforces the point that you make throughout the book and that we've talked about is that this shit is so hard to do. It's hard. It's really hard to win an NBA championship, much less win three or four of them in a, in a brief period. That's why Kerr told us, Michael Lee and I, when we did the piece about Jordan going back, he's like, there's no way they would have won eight straight. It's absolutely preposterous to think they would have won eight straight. There was zero chance. They were done. They were done. Done after the first three Pete. They had nothing left to give. Well, we and forget so- we forget how close they come to losing, too. I mean, it just the Warriors are like that. We forget that the Warriors damn near lost to the Rockets in that game seven with, you know, what was it, 20, 27 missed right. threes in a row? You know, right. like and we say it, we we just act like they're robots. And to, you know, what Steve said is true. Like they could have just kept doing that. The 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 motivation goes away. You you get burned out. There's only so much energy that you have. Other teams are hungrier. Um and injuries, luck. Yeah. <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know. So yeah, it's 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 very difficult to continue this thing on. Um and it's 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 remarkable in a lot of ways that that they were able to have the run that they have. I actually kind of think I will be curious your your opinion on this. I know from a business standpoint, this is devastating. You know, this whole season, even before the pandemic, it was just devastating to them because, you know, they're opening a new building and it's not filled at all many nights. Um, but I always but I wonder if in some ways having this kind of gap year, which it really is, might help them in the long run to kind of get them back on track and get them, you know, back hungry again for next season and the coming seasons to come with their core group. Oh, I think so. I mean, it would have been ideal without, I don't know, the pandemic jumbling the schedule and just being awful all the way around and maybe compromising their ability to spend money in the future. I mean, Lacob was not a billionaire when he bought this team and spent a pretty penny to get the last piece of good land in San Francisco for the arena privately financed. So that's an issue. But as far as the team and its motivation, yeah, you get everybody healed up. You get Clay Thompson healed up. You get Steph refreshed and hungry. Um, it presents an opportunity, and then you've got the replenishment that is the draft pick, and then additionally the Minnesota Timberwolves draft pick the next season. Now, the big choice before them is they've got a bit of a timeline problem. Um, I like draft picks. I like the idea of uh, having youth come in and carrying it to the next generation, but by the time that pick likely becomes good enough to add value to your team, your guys right. are out of their primes. So that is a tricky situation for them to navigate going forward. Um, but they've got some tools to do it. But Steve Kerr said it, man. He said it. He said it a few months ago. We are never going to be what we were ever again. That's done. You know, they could maybe sneak their way into to a title, you know, be a little bit like that uh, – that D Wade Miami Heat team where it was sort of aging and veteranish and by by Hooker by Crook and Bennett Salvatore whistle they won a championship. Um but you know, they're not gonna be they're not gonna be the prohibitive favorites anytime soon. Well man, this is this is uh we could go on forever. Um this the, it's a fascinating book. It's a great read. 
It's well reported. KD cusses you out via text, which I think is awesome. <laughs> it's fantastic. <laughs> I've never had anybody. I've never had like a really like superstar player the F word? actually curse me out. No, that that has never happened to me. Like I've had guys be like, Play, look at me funny after their story, but by, by the way, not only did that happen, but. It took a long time for the text to happen. It was one of those where I just kept looking at my phone and the dot, dot, dot was on it. Like it might have come up 30. Like, I don't know how many drafts or how many iterations it went through. Oh, my God. That's funny. That's funny. It's, I was so – I was almost proud of you. You know, it was like, yeah, my guy got cussed out by the best. All right, way to go, Ethan. I, I, the thing I don't understand is I had – there were some people, and I don't know what people think of the media rules or what they are. I got some criticism for posting that exchange. And I was thinking, man, if I reach out to you for comment and you right. send comment back, what, I'm supposed to not put it in there? I don't get this idea. <laughs> Gotta put that in there. <laughs> it was outstanding. That was and great. it's about you. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's not like he's talking out of turn or about somebody else or something delicate. He's talking to you about you. Hell yeah, you bring right. that shit in there. <laughs> well, it was fantastic, as is the book, man. If you get a chance... Oh, The Victory Machine. I, I love the title of that, and I wonder where that came from as we close this out. Because uh, a machine kind of conno machine connotates, you know, unfeeling, robotic, and that's the last thing these guys are. Well, yeah, but it's the Lacobian vision for what they could be, you know, this kind of Frankenstein monster, mm -hmm. which I guess right, really right. made sense for the Valley. The other title I was thinking about was uh, – Appropriate fear because I love that Greg Popovich oh, uses yeah. that phrase. Oh, yeah, it's great. And it sort yes, of gives yes, that kind of Darwinian sort of NBA sense to it, but it didn't totally mm -hmm. fit. But that's another one, you know, that's another one we experimented with. But yes, the victory machine, it's a quarantine dream. Read it, leave five star <laughs> reviews on Amazon if you can. Uh, I appreciate all the response and everything readers are saying. It's been really cool. Well, best of luck to you, man. Stay safe. I hope everybody is, is good with the family and, um, you know, keep doing the Skype thing, man. Keep doing the, the Zoom the book tour. I'm fascinated by it. And um, I feel for you because I would I would not do it. I would be angry <laughs> that, my, that my tour got rained out and got, you know, you know, got postponed. Um, but you seem to be handling it better than I would. Congrats, hey, I man. Can't, I, I can't write a whole book on how uh, chasing ultimate domination and success tends to make people unhappy and then be unhappy that my book tour wasn't perfect. That would be too on the nose. So <laughs> like take what life gives you, you know, appreciate the good things. I think we're all going through that process as a society right now. And um, I'm engaged in it as well. I'm trying to focus on the good that I still have with everything that's not going on currently. Absolutely. Great perspective, man. Well, that's what we got this week, folks. Uh, speaking of reviews, please leave us a review, Apple Podcasts, and five stars are always better. And if it's less than five, keep it to yourself, you know? So we'll uh, be back next week.